Let's turn for our reading from God's Word to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12. We're beginning to read at verse number 14. Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterwards, as you know, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. He could bring about no change of mind, though he sought the blessing with tears. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom and storm, to the trumpet blast and to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What have you given up in order to be a Christian? Conversion, turning to the Lord Jesus Christ by God's grace, inevitably means for each of us leaving certain things behind. There are those aspects of our old life before conversion that were sinful. And of course, they must be given up. The Lord calls us to holiness and to separation from sin. And that's a lifelong undertaking that will occupy us all our days. But there may be other things too that you've had to give up in order to be Christ's disciple. Uh, For some, it may be job opportunities, perhaps Promotions that would have involved compromising your Christian principles. And there are those who have made hard decisions about career and about work in order to be faithful to the Lord. Some have had to accept lower standards of living. In many parts of the world, of course, that is the case for our brothers and sisters if they are to be faithful Christians. Maybe you've lost friendships. Maybe there are strained relationships with family members and with loved ones. And all of that is costly. And there may be those times as Christians when you find yourself saying, well, was it worth it? And I think of those things that I've had to give up, is it worth it? And the first readers of the letter to the Hebrews were in that kind of position. They were mainly Jewish Christians, not exclusively, but by and large, they were from a Jewish background. And they'd taken a costly step to become Christians. 
They had forsaken their old religion that had a a degree of ceremony and uh, color about it, certainly in the days when the temple was still standing. And they're following a carpenter from Nazareth, uh, one who died on a Roman cross. Friends and relatives probably gave them a hard time on account of their Christian faith, perhaps taunting them with what you've given up. Look, you left that behind and that behind, and what have you got? Following a carpenter from Nazareth, the religion where many of its followers are slaves and from the lower social classes. And they were wondering, was it worth it? And one of the things the writer to the Hebrews is seeking to do is to stress to these Christians, these Jewish Christians, yes, it was worth it. It is worth anything that you have left behind or given up in order to be Christ's disciple. We see that in the portion that we read earlier in chapter 12. And there the the writer is drawing a sharp contrast between their former life and their life now as Christian disciples with, he tells them, surpassing glory. Anything they have left behind or given up does not begin to compare with what they have as Christians. And so there is much in these verses to encourage us in faithful discipleship, perhaps especially if you find yourself wondering, is it worth it? The answer of the writer to the Hebrews is, it most certainly is worth it. You really have lost nothing in comparison to what you now have as a Christian. We want to focus our thoughts on Hebrews 12 And it's verses 22 to 24 in particular. Our blessings in Christ. Our blessings in Christ. Because we here have a magnificent description of what is ours as the people of God. Our blessings in Christ. The writer deals, first of all, with The city. The city. There's a contrast here that is very clear between Old Testament Israel and now New Testament believers. Here are things that Jewish readers would be very familiar with. But if we know our Old Testament, of course, we'll also understand what the writer is saying. He speaks of how the Israelites had come, we have it in the book of Exodus, of course, to Sinai. They had left Egypt, they had crossed wilderness territory, and they arrived at Mount Sinai. They came to a mountain, he says, and what a dramatic scene it was. Uh, You have it in uh, Exodus 19. A mountain burning with fire, darkness, gloom, storm, overwhelming, powerful scene. Indeed, it was overwhelming for the people who had stood there. They couldn't cope 
with what they were experiencing. They were, they were asking for it to stop. It was so overwhelming. They'd come to Mount Sinai. The writer says, but you, as New Testament believers, whether you're Jews or Gentiles, you, he says, have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. And immediately you can see uh, that the contrast is vast. How different the circumstances of New Testament believers. We've not come to Mount Sinai. We've come to Mount Zion. Of course, we need to understand what that means exactly. What is Mount Zion? Well, literally, Zion was a hill on which the citadel of Jerusalem was built. Zion really was the heart of Jerusalem in Old Testament days, the capital city of King David. But that citadel, that hill, very quickly came to symbolize more than an earthly city, a building of brick and stone. Very quickly, Zion came to symbolize God's dwelling place. And it's vital for us to understand that. Zion is God's dwelling place. And so often in the Psalms, we find that. Psalm 99 and verse 2, Great is the Lord in Zion. Now it is not, of course, that God's people in the Old Testament thought of God as, as confined to one little geographical area. The gods of the nations were confined to small areas. But the God of Israel was a God of the entire world, of the entire universe. The God who had created all things, the very beginning of the Hebrew Scriptures. So they were not thinking of God as a little deity dwelling on a hill in Jerusalem. That's not what they meant. That's not how his people thought of him. But the language of Zion is significant because Zion symbolizes God's dwelling place. Zion is a spiritual location. Indeed, it's in the hearts of his people. Zion is not a place that you would visit on a, on a tour and, and walk around at marvel at. You could literally do that in Jerusalem, but Zion in the Scriptures, Zion in the Psalms, and Zion here in Hebrews is really a city made of people. The people of God, where he dwells. He dwells in their hearts by grace and by his Holy Spirit. And if that was so in the Old Testament, we're not surprised if that's picked up and used now in the New Testament. That the same idea of Zion as the dwelling place of God, Zion as the people of God, Zion as the church, is precisely how the language is used here, for example, in Hebrews. Zion 
is the city of God. Zion is the people of God. And of course, often in singing the Psalms when I introduce them, that's a point I make. And we need to keep making it and keep reminding ourselves when we sing about Zion, we're singing about the dwelling place of God. And the dwelling place of God, we know, is in the hearts of his people, in the hearts of redeemed sinners. Zion is the church, the spiritual body of Christ. And that's how we are to think of Zion. And we find that language used right through the New Testament. And when we come to the last book of Scripture, in Revelation 14, the very first verse, John writes, There before me was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion. And of course, it's visionary and it's spiritual. It's the church of God, Christ-centered at the heart of Zion, is the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. If he's not there, really the place doesn't matter. Zion is nothing if it doesn't have the Lord right at the center, the focus of the attention of his people. So Zion, the Mount Zion to which we have come as Christians, is not an earthly place. It's the heavenly Jerusalem we read here, the people of God. And of course, in coming to the heavenly Jerusalem, we are talking about a spiritual experience. It's salvation. If you're saved, you've come to the heavenly Jerusalem, to Mount Zion. Yes, we're still living here on earth for the time being, but at the same time, if we are saved, if we belong to the Lord Jesus, we have come to this city, to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God, we are told. And that's what matters. It's the presence of God that makes the city what it is. It's the presence of God that makes us the people we are. Saved sinners brought into this city. But even as we dwell in an earthly city in Belfast, wherever it might be, we have also come to the heavenly Jerusalem, to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God. Why would Jewish Christians want to go back to Mount Sinai with the darkness and the fire and the gloom? The writer is saying, well, they have come to Mount Zion. As every Christian, every one of us here who belongs to the Lord Jesus has done, we might sit in a church building in Belfast, but we are also in the city of the living God. As we sing in Psalm 46, God is within her. This is the place of life and salvation, the city. There's the great blessing that God has given us now, not Mount Sinai, but Mount Zion. Remember that when you sing the Psalms and sing about Zion. The city. Secondly, the arrival. 
but you have come. It's not a place where we've always lived, of course. It's not a place where these uh, Jewish Christians have always lived. We have come to Mount Zion. Where were we before? Well, we were in the place of lostness and darkness and sin. But the writer says you've left behind your previous dwelling, that place of, of sin, of servitude to Satan, the place of the fear of death. You have left it behind. You have left sin and lostness, and now you've arrived at the city of God. Like Abraham, who left behind the homeland, Ur of the Chaldees, and moved into Haran, and then left it behind, and moved to the promised land. We have left behind that place of lostness and sin. We're like Abraham, as we're told in Hebrews 11, looking forward to a city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Even Abraham was looking forward to this spiritual city by faith. And that's where, by God's grace, you and I have arrived. We've left behind the place of lostness and sin, and we have arrived at the city of God. Now, how has that happened? How did we get there? If you were to go to the the literal Zion, you'd have to get on a bus or walk there. But how have we reached Mount Zion? And verse 24 takes us right to the heart of how you get to Mount Zion. Because the writer writes about the sprinkled blood. What does he mean? Well, of course, it's the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. That's the blood that he's talking about. And back in chapter 9, he he tells us without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. Hebrews 9.22. So to have our sins forgiven, we must be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. And of course, that's an Old Testament picture, isn't it? You go back into the Old Testament uh, and you read about how Moses in Exodus 24 took the blood of the sacrifice and he dipped a sprig of hyssop in it and he sprinkled it on the people. What was the point of that? Well, it was symbolism. It was the symbol of how, by virtue of the sacrifice and the blood that was shed, sinners can be forgiven. Sprinkled with the blood of the sacrifice, sins are forgiven. But of course, as the writer to the Hebrews stresses at great length, Chapter 9, chapter 10, the blood of any number of animals can't take away your sin. The idea that the blood of bulls and goats could deal with the heart of a sinner made in God's image is just nonsense. It couldn't happen. Those sacrifices were a temporary, a holding measure that God gave until the perfect sacrifice would come, until Jesus would come. And when he came, we don't need bulls and goats and lambs and whatever else. Christ is the sacrifice. And when he died on the cross and he shed his blood, there is the answer to sin. There is how you get into the city of God. 
you're sprinkled with the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. His blood does what the blood of all those animals could never do. And again, the question to Jewish Christians, why would you go back to the blood of animals when you're sprinkled with the blood of the Lamb of God? You wouldn't. Of course you wouldn't. And that is how we become part of the city of God. That's how we get to Mount Zion. We are sprinkled with the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what happens when a sinner believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our sins are forgiven. That's the language that's used, for example, in Revelation 7. Verse 14, we read of God's people. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Of course, literally, you don't dip a white garment in blood and make it white. But spiritually, our robes are washed in the blood of Christ. We are cleansed. Our sins are forgiven. We're sprinkled with the blood of the Lamb of God. And as forgiven sinners, we are admitted to the city of God. We have arrived at Mount Zion. The blood of Jesus brings salvation and peace. Writer mentions the blood of Abel. What a difference. The blood of Abel, killed by his brother Cain, cried out for vengeance, for death, for judgment. But now for the Christian, we have blood that speaks of forgiveness and cleansing and salvation. We have arrived at Mount Zion. And the writer puts it this way, you have come. And the tense of the verb he uses tells us this is permanent. He's saying, in effect, you have come to Mount Zion and you're going to stay there. And you'll never leave it. It's full of assurance for Christians. You have come and you're not going to get lost and you're not going to drift away and nobody is going to take you away from the city of God. You've come. And this is your home. And this is where you're staying. Full of assurance and comfort. Why would you go back? Why would you turn to anything else when this is what the Lord has done for you? The city, the arrival, and thirdly, the gathering. The gathering. We're at Mount Zion. We're in the city of God. What do we see? Who is there with us? And the writer gives us a wonderful description, an amazing description of what the city of God is like. Oh, he doesn't describe houses and towers and so forth. He describes people. Here in this city... In this new life that we have received in Christ, 
We're not alone. Here is a gathering in Zion. And the riches of this life that God gives us when we believe in Christ is clear when we see who is there. First of all, he writes, thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. Well, there were angels at Sinai. The angels gave the tablets of the law to Moses. We're told that in the Bible. They were giving the law to Moses, but the law at best condemns and tells you what you've done wrong. What you need is something to deal with your sin. And of course, we have that in the sprinkled blood of Jesus. And now in Mount Zion, we're joining with thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. And the word he uses is the word for a a festival gathering, a wedding reception, a time of rejoicing. And I think it's primarily here the angels who are rejoicing. Yes, God's people rejoice, but the angels are rejoicing. Do you think of that? Do you think of that often? That the angels rejoice to see what God is doing with sinners like us. They're delighted by it, to see his love and his grace. Angels who sing, as Revelation 5 tells us, worthy is the Lamb to receive glory and honor and power and so forth. Worthy is the Lamb. They're praising, not us. They're not saying to us how wise you were to believe in Jesus. They're praising God. They're praising our Savior because of what he's doing for us. Worthy is the Lamb. The angels are gathered, thousands upon thousands. The church of the firstborn also we read about. The firstborn whose names are written in heaven. Perhaps it's all of God's people. May well be, or maybe it's the part of the church still on earth. Doesn't matter. We are among the firstborn See, the firstborn in a family was the one who was in a position of honor. That's why firstborn matters so much in the Bible. The firstborn had the place of honor, the place of inheritance. And that tells us our standing before God. We are firstborn children, all of us. We are those who are in the place of honor, the place where we will receive an inheritance. Isn't that a wonderful thought? Once you were a sinner and you were lost, now you're among the firstborn children of God. As Paul puts it in Romans eight seventeen, we are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. That's what grace does for a sinner. And by grace, God has written our names in what Revelation 21 and verse 27 calls the Lamb's Book of Life. The book of those chosen by God to be saved. The list of the firstborn who will be sprinkled by the blood of the Lamb. 
If you're a Christian today, if you belong to Christ, you're a firstborn child of God, and your name is written in heaven. Maybe written in many places in this world. And with the internet and so forth, sometimes we're shocked by where our names turn up. You got that information. Who knew that? But of supreme importance is that your name is written in heaven. That's what matters. Church of the firstborn. We come to the thousands of angels. We come to the church of the firstborn. You've come to God, the writer says, the judge of all men. And there's a reminder there, isn't there? Of course, God's a holy God. He's not a God to be trifled with. He's not a God to be approached casually. He is a holy God. A God, we're reminded in Exodus 34, who does not leave the guilty unpunished. At first we may think that's a terrifying thought. I don't want to go there. I don't want to go to face God, uh, the judge of all men. And then we remember, because... Our sins are forgiven in Christ. We do not need to be afraid of the judge. Because Christ was judged in our place and took our punishment. And we have nothing to fear. We do not need to be afraid of standing before the judge of all men. If we belong to Jesus, he's taken our judgment. And indeed, in Bible language, cast your mind back to the Old Testament, the judges often were deliverers who set God's people free, who vindicated the innocent. And God, the judge of all men, is one who delivers us and protects us. He's a God, as we sing in Psalm 68, who's a father to the fatherless a defender of widows, a God who will deliver us in this life and a God who will deliver us the last day. We've come to God, the judge of all men. We've come to the spirits of righteous men made perfect. Think of that. We are part of a church which has many of its members in heaven. The church is not entirely on earth. Many are already in glory. You know many of them. You love many of them. And they're there. They're there waiting for you to join them. The spirits of righteous men made perfect. Isn't it wonderful to think of believers who've gone ahead of us as righteous and made perfect? often quote, often at a graveside, shorter catechism answer. Souls of believers are at their death, made perfect in holiness, and do immediately pass into glory. Righteous men made perfect. They are there. No spot of sin upon them, no defilement, No temptation, 
justified by faith and now perfect in the Lord's sight. And we can look forward, we who are still on earth, to being among the righteous made perfect. We're perfect already in the eyes of God and at the last day when we're raised up body and soul, we will be actually perfect. But already we're part of a church with many of its members in glory. And finally we've come, the writer tells us, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And don't we long to see the Savior? We see him with the eyes of faith, of course, at the moment. We read about him in the scriptures. We can see him. And one day we will see him face to face. There were temporary human mediators like Moses and others. And again, the question to these Jewish Christians, why would you go back to that? We have Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. We have the last perfect, glorious mediator, the Son of God, who died for us and rose again. They had Moses. We have Christ. Far superior. And because he shed his blood, we have come to the city. We've come to Mount Zion the city of the living God, and we will never leave. What a glorious company we have joined. Thousands upon thousands of angels. The church of the firstborn. To God, the judge of all men. To the spirits of righteous men made perfect. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Whatever you have given up to be Jesus' disciple, and whatever one day you may have to give up, it is nothing in comparison to what we have in Him. Blessings in Christ. They are rich, they are glorious, they can never be lost. And at the very heart of it all is the Jesus, the Lamb of God, who shed his blood to save you and to give you all these blessings and all this glory and the one you'll see and worship and serve throughout eternity. Why would you go back? There is no reason at all. We have everything in Christ.